Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Good afternoon. Welcome back to the Truth in My Days apologetics program. Today, we have Dr. Adrian Torres interviewing John regarding the arguments for the resurrection. We are continuing from yesterday's program. Hope you enjoy. Let's compare these historical sources for Jesus to some other great characters from history. Let's look at Alexander the Great, a great uh, military leader who conquered the entire known world of his day and made Greek the language of the entire ancient world. Uh, we can look at the two emperors who ruled during the time of Jesus. These emperors ruled the, the greatest empire on the planet at the time. Surely there should be a lot more written about them than about Jesus. Uh, and we'll look then at, at the case for Jesus. Now, uh, we start with Alexander. Alexander, we have five ancient accounts of his life, but the earliest is one written by a man named Diodorus Siculus, and it was written in the first century BC, which means our earliest account of Alexander was written more than 300 years after he died. Certainly not eyewitness testimony. Do we even know what this fellow wrote? We have only 16 manuscripts, handwritten copies, ancient copies of his book. And the earliest comes from the mid 10th century AD. So it's more than a thousand years after it was written. If we look at the emperor, Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor in the Christmas story. Again, five ancient accounts, but only one of them is written by an eyewitness. Of this one, there are only 10 existing manuscripts, and the earliest one was written about 900 years. I said the earliest copy we have is about 900 years after it was written. If we look at Tiberius Caesar, this is the emperor at the time of Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. We have four ancient accounts, but only one is eyewitness. And that one is missing the last eight years of Tiberius's life. How many manuscripts do we have of this source? Zero. There was one copy that was discovered in 1515 and then lost in a fire. So these are all considered good, reliable accounts. We believe that we have good historical evidence for these three gentlemen on the basis of four or five accounts, but in which this one or zero are actually eyewitnesses. Now, in the case of Jesus, we have four main ancient accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of which, as we've seen, three are eyewitness, fourth is based on eyewitness testimony. Do we know what these originally said? We have about 5,800 manuscripts of these various New Testament books and written you know, probably no more than 50, 60, 70 years after the publication, our oldest manuscript. So when claims are made that the historical evidence for Jesus is not good, they are really counting on people not knowing the context. The evidence for Jesus' life, ministry, miracles, death, resurrection is actually stronger, better founded than for any other events of ancient history, by far. It's not even close. And then if you look at what these liberal scholars say, like Robert Funk of the Jesus Seminar, if we look carefully, we find that they actually offer no evidence for their claims. Funk, in a preface to the five Gospels that he was co-author of, writes, it was once assumed that scholars had to prove that details in the Synoptic Gospels were not historical. The current assumption is more nearly the opposite. The Gospels are now assumed to be narratives in which the memory of Jesus is embellished by mythic 
elements and plausible fictions. Understand what TF means. Funk is admitting that what they say about how unreliable the gospel books are is not based on fact. It's not based on evidence. It is an assumption. We're simply assuming that we can't trust the gospel books. Gerd Ludemann, who we mentioned before, author of books such as What Really Happened to Jesus, A Historical Approach to the Resurrection, and The Resurrection of Christ, A Historical Inquiry. In the beginning of his book, What Jesus Didn't Say, Ludemann writes this, it has long been a truism of biblical criticism that the New Testament abounds in sayings incorrectly assigned to Jesus or to the context in which they appear Three presuppositions underlying my work are the following. First, the authors of the Gospels of the New Testament are not known. Second, the authors were not eyewitnesses. Notice that, folks. These are presuppositions. They're not facts. They can't prove it. They don't try to prove it. They simply assume that the authors are not eyewitnesses. And to do that, they have to ignore this mountain of evidence establishing that the authors were indeed Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, I think um, what struck me most is that when compared to other historical documents, the Gospels are very reliable as a historical document. I mean, I didn't realize that what we just take for granted about Caesar Augustus and Caesar Tiberius and Alexander the Great may not even be very accurate, looking at how, how much later the, the events were recorded. True, and, and every once in a while we find some interesting thing. Uh, the five accounts of Alexander the Great, for example, all talking about a particular battle against the Persians, all record a victory for Alexander's forces. We, we actually found one ancient uh, record from Persia not that long ago, that one record says the opposite, the Persians one. So it is questionable, isn't it? Yes, indeed. And the Gospels seem to have a lot more documents, a lot more reliability that we can actually prove. So it should be viewed as a very reliable history book. Yes, indeed. You'd have to say that what these scholars are doing is, is a logical fallacy called special pleading, where they want one set of standards to be applied to all their historical books and a different set of standards applied to the gospel books. And that's just not acceptable. Uh, what you hear all the time from skeptics is this, these kind of claims, such as modern scholars tell us that scholars have shown, scholars have found that, but what you will never find along with that is evidence. Scholars have not shown or found these. They assume these, they assert these, they bluff. When we look at the actual evidence, we find, as you said, that the gospel books are supremely reliable. Now, a couple of other points to bear in mind about the eyewitness testimony. They are qualitatively and quantitatively different from much eyewitness testimony. The disciples, once we're writing these books, they knew Jesus well. They associated with him in person for three years or more. So it really would not have been possible to voice an imposter on them. Uh, furthermore, unlike reports of Elvis Presley still being alive, or I saw him out of the corner of my eye in a donut shop or something, uh, the disciples did not just see momentary, fleeting glimpses of the risen Jesus. They touched him, ate with him, and spent time with him. 
Uh, we're told in Acts 1-3 that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days. So there's no chance really to foist any kind of uh, imposter on them or to assume they were mistaken, that uh, their ideas were based on some fleeting glimpses here and there. But I hear uh, arguments about the fact that maybe the disciples contrived together to make up this resurrection business. Yes, yes, that does come up occasionally. And amongst our best arguments, we will deal with that. The, uh, immediately, you could say, of course, the old principle of qui bono, who profits? What would they gain by making up these stories? They didn't get money from it. They didn't get power from it. Uh, they got persecution. They got, in many cases, death. Uh, but as I said, we will look into this in more detail as we go through our arguments. Another point about this eyewitness testimony is their position in real time and space inviting confirmation. It's not this sort of once upon a time material or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, that kind of stuff. The writers tell us what's happening when and where so they can be checked. Uh, Luke, for example, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 2 says, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So that's the other thing. They, they, they have historical settings allowing people to go and check them out. Yet another point is that the disciples were not easily convinced. They were not credulous people. They were not primitive dummies who could be easily fooled. People in those days probably had more experience with death than we do nowadays in our insulated life in the Western world. They knew what dead people were. The empty tomb, when they came to it, it didn't convince them, nor should it. The idea that that just because the tomb is empty, Jesus must have risen. Well, there are other explanations that they would find more plausible. It wasn't until Jesus actually appeared to them that they believed, and even then they were hard to convince. Some were still doubting. Uh, when he shows up, Luke uh, in chapter 24 records this. Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. These are not people given to believing that a man will come back from the dead. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And the significance of the hands and feet is they have the wounds from his crucifixion on them. And they still... But while they still did not believe for joy, it's too good to be true. And marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. Which makes sense, because ghosts don't eat. Humans get hungry. He hadn't eaten for three days. It's reasonable that he would be hungry. And after they finally believed, Thomas, this apostle Thomas, who wasn't with them at the time, he still wouldn't believe. You know, that famous story of doubting Thomas, the other disciples are telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails 
and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. The point is this, they were not easy to convince. And as they wrote these up, they were not trying to make themselves look good. They were admitting that they were not easy to convince. They found it as hard to believe as we would. In the end, they believed it and preached it because the evidence was overwhelming. And of course, they preached in the face of persecution, threat, and death. So that's our best argument, number one. And this is not order of importance. It's just number one in terms of number numbers in which we're describing them. Best argument, number one, the eyewitness testimony. What do you think? Well, certainly, I think with the eyewitness testimony and the reliability of the Gospels, that's a very strong argument that the resurrection happened as it is recorded. Although, because it is so, you know, such a great miracle, I believe people will still be explaining around it, even though eyewitness people may think that Jesus resurrected, but maybe he didn't really. Maybe it wasn't really a resurrection. He appeared later and saw them. It's just their interpretation of the event. Okay, but they saw him dead. Yeah, they saw him buried, and they see him alive again. How? What other possible interpretation could be made of that? Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but please join us for the next part tomorrow. Same time and same place. If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you. Please feel free to share any questions or comments you may have. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, and YouTube. Simply search Truth In My Days as one word. Again, Truth In My Days as one word, no spaces in between. And you can connect with us. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you. Thank you.